Hi, everyone. Hi, guys. Welcome to Wicked, Weird, and Grim, your number one podcast for a trip through the history of the odd, haunting, and mystifying. I'm Ara. And I'm Caroline. Together, we're the Grim Sisters. This week, we're doing our November episode very, very late. We're <laughs> it's aware. It's literally December. You know. <laughs> All my fault, honestly. I basically slipped into this depressive episode and I did not want to edit for anything. So, so many apologies for that, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry and I will do better. <laughs> it worked out though because I had exams and some crazy stuff going on in my family. So, it was fine. So, what we had actually planned to do for our sort of big November episode was we really wanted to honor that November is Native American Heritage Month. And so what we're talking about today is the horrific colonization practices that the U.S. and Canada enacted and continue to perpetuate. For today's topic, we'll specifically be discussing residential schools, but this is just one area of current settler colonization practices that need to be addressed. There are countless others, and unfortunately, we can't cover them all. However, we're going to try our very best to ensure that this episode critically interrogates the history of present-day patterns of settler colonization and oppression and highlights the many indigenous forms of resurgence that is present today, and will hopefully be informing and encouraging others to do the same along the way. As today's topic is definitely grim, we do want to give a warning because this topic includes a lot of really horrible things and is, is just kind of horrible in general. This is going to include genocide, suicide, grooming, physical and sexual assault, as well as intense psychological manipulation. There are aspects of racism and colonization, as well as the Catholic and Anglican Church's role in this. We're going to discuss all these things pretty heavily. So please proceed to listen at your own risk, especially if you are a person of color, if you are indigenous, or just an individual with like grooming PTSD or religious trauma, because this episode might be pretty hard for you to hear. And just basically take it one step at a time. We know a lot of these topics are tough. So if something does affect you, don't be afraid to pause and come back later, or just, you know, skip. to ask yeah. questions or skip. We know that this type of discussion is difficult to talk about as well as to hear. So yeah. first, we'd really like to start off with a land acknowledgement for the area of the U.S. that we live in, which is the Piedmont area of North Carolina. And a land acknowledgement essentially gives acknowledgement to the Native American and indigenous people who live in an area and who were colonized by settlers and who often aren't credited for being a part of this area and for being the original people of this area. So we would like to acknowledge that where we now live is the traditional territories of the Catawba, as well as the Waxhaw, Chera, and Suguri peoples, who are eventually forced to join the Catawba tribe. We also recognize that we are a part of the settler colonialist project on land that's colonized. The city of Charlotte itself is located on the traditional crossroads of two indigenous trading paths, the Okanichi Path and the Lower Cherokee Traders Path. And these two routes facilitated extensive trade networks of the Cherokee, the Catawba, the Sapani, and the Congaree peoples prior to colonization. Today, the Catawba Nation continues as a federally recognized tribe. I also just wanted to add that one of my professors, when we talked about this in my genocide course that I just finished taking, he linked us to a really cool map where you can look up your area and what tribal lands you are living on. Mm -hmm. And so we will make sure that we post that as a link on Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. 
because it's very interesting and I think important because I definitely didn't know like what land I was living on until I saw that map. Yeah, so. and it's really important also to recognize tribes that aren't federally recognized because some of them the aren't. federal recognition process is honestly insane. And oh, wow. the fact that people are federally recognized is almost a miracle because they make it so hard to do because the government does not mm-hmm. want to support indigenous and Native American people. Yeah. I'll say it. They are not making things easy. Yeah. And um, which is probably why I didn't know like what lands I was on until mm-hmm. I saw that map. Yeah. So we also recognize today the many enslaved and indentured peoples who were forced to dedicate their labor to the construction of what is now the city and surrounding areas in which we live. This is the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. To these peoples and their descendants, we acknowledge the grave injustices inflicted on them and recognize the indelible mark of their labor on the creation of the space that we live in today. It's because of them that we live here. To truly discuss the history of residential schools in North America, it's necessary to first mention that residential schools are not a thing of the past. And I will repeat that. They are not a thing of the past. Many people know that there is currently a wave of publicity surrounding residential schools in Canada, specifically in regard to the horrific discovery of the over 1,300 unmarked graves in residential schools ran by the Catholic Church. This news demonstrates residential schools' horrific legacies of pain and suffering. However, residential schools are actually even more ingrained in our North American societies than we know or are led to believe. Because residential schools actually continue to exist today in the United States. Just a quick Google search actually will show you that because the U.S. Bureau of Indian Education will come up right away. And to quote them, they directly operate four off-reservation boarding schools in Oklahoma, California, Oregon, and South Dakota. And while the U.S. Bureau of Indian Education is its own problematic entity in itself, the real concern more recently has been the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church's role in these residential schools. For over 120 years, the Catholic Church operated nearly three-fourths of residential schools within the U.S. alone, not including Canada. And this is not even mentioning the vast history of colonization that the Catholic Church has played a role in, prevalent in the Americas since, you know, the, the Spanish conquistador era until today. This basically means that tens of thousands of Native children, perhaps even like hundreds of thousands, We don't really know what the accurate number is because the records at these schools were not kept very well, but it is at least tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. So tens of thousands Native American children were forced through these schools with really devastating effects. At the very least, children displayed signs of PTSD and mental disillusionment. Children who were returned to their families eventually or were able to reconnect with them after getting out of these schools... They were said to be completely different people. They were like scornful of native life and culture, or they were just completely shut off. And many families were not even able to communicate with their children anymore because the children, they no longer remembered their native language. They only spoke English that had been, you know, force fed to them. And their parents only spoke their indigenous language. Mm -hmm. Even if they did happen to remember the language, they wouldn't do it because they had been told like it was not an educated or good language. Yeah, Yeah. it was like anxiety inducing, I would imagine. And the very purpose of residential schools in both the U.S. and Canada was to have Native children adopt Western culture with Christianity being chief amongst that. In fact, Western values and Christianity at that time were considered to be one and the same. And unfortunately, this viewpoint is still held by many currently. 
And more to the point, such individuals believed that they were, quote, civilizing the savages, end quote. We realized that that is some really problematic language, and there's probably some more of that kind of thing throughout this. Mm -hmm. It'll all be in, like, quotations, you know, it's definitely not the language that we choose to use. But it really is what people believed at the time, what these colonizers believed about um, Native peoples. And um, this idea of the, you know, quote-unquote savage is an overarching theme that continues to this day with settler colonialism. The similar idea of the, you know, quote-unquote noble savage has also been associated with Native Americans and just indigenous people throughout the world. This makes more sense when we really look back at the origins of residential schools in the U.S., And the man who really started residential schools in the U.S. was Lieutenant Richard Henry Pratt. Hate him. Oh, yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) And Pratt had the idea to, and I quote, kill the Indian, save the man. It's disgusting, but it honestly represents the way people thought about indigenous people at this time. Not just in the U.S., but around the world. The school he started first was in Pennsylvania. It was called Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And as we mentioned, the school and others were designed to forcibly assimilate Native children into sort of these like white westernized cultures, right? White Western like Christian culture. And Pratt believed, along with so many other people at this time, that assimilating Native peoples into Western culture would sort of destroy the connection they had to their own tribal cultures and would fix them in their eyes. First, colonizers, of course, would come into indigenous communities and tribes and slowly, or sometimes all at once, begin to exert more and more control over Native people. Children would be taken from their families at all ages, from small children to older young adults, Often, children were taken by force, but others were sent there by their own families. People like Richard Henry Pratt did whatever they could to convince Native parents to send their children to these schools, and these methods were, of course, usually very deceptive. The true nature and purpose for the schools was not at all revealed to parents, and so many of them believed that they were sending their children away to get a good education. Right. I think that's really sad. Like, they were just preying on parents' wishes for their children to have good lives. It's really sad. So some people also would send their children to residential schools because they were truly just really desperate. For example, there's a story of one woman who had said that her great-grandfather was basically like a prisoner of war. And he was held captive by federal troops. So he's living in this, like, horrible conditioned camp. This is in the 1970s. It sounds like, I feel like our understanding of history, we talk a lot about, you know, these sort of like, you know, quote unquote, like Indian Wars. We hear about that in like the 1800s. But this is going on in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And of course, this put this man's, you know, family in a really horrible position. She basically sent her children to a residential school because she felt like there wasn't really another option. She couldn't really provide for them herself. And her husband had been killed in a war. Her great-grandfather was like a prisoner of war. She has nobody to rely on. She has no way to defend herself against the colonizers and Mm -hmm. these people that are like coming in and telling her what they think is best for her kids. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, she sends them away, you know, thinking that they'll be safe. Most of the children who went to the Carlisle School founded by Pratt were from Oklahoma. They were sent thousands of miles from home, completely removed from their community, and then stripped of everything that connected them to their heritage and culture. When they arrived at Carlisle, they were shown a list of English names and were told to pick one. From that point on, that was the only name they were allowed to use for themselves. Using their tribal name was strictly forbidden and punishable to the extreme. 
In addition to this, the children's hair was more often than not cut short. And for indigenous communities that prize their hair as a sacred and spiritual part of them, not even, you know, allowing people except those most close to them to touch their hair and almost never cutting their hair, this was a extremely horrific act, not only a physical violation, but a cultural and spiritual one as well. Children were also dressed in westernized clothing, with their shorn hair and traditional clothing typically being burned. And the children now all looked exactly the same and were ready to be further indoctrinated into Christian westernized culture. I think, too, you know, something to consider is like so much of this is about them trying just to keep these people from holding on to their own culture, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's why they were cutting hair and things like that. But even if those cultural elements were not at play, that is so dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody forced me to cut my hair, I would be like distraught over that. Yeah. And I just like my hair because it's pretty, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, those things are just so dehumanizing, just like having somebody force you to change your name, change the way you look, all these things. Taking your bodily autonomy. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's taking taking your whole self away from you. Not unlike during the show where they would literally shave their heads and like, you know, tattoo them and it's the same idea. Yeah, for real. Yeah. And just making them into numbers, into things that they can use them for. So Yeah. And if that doesn't remind you of the Holocaust, which for the record is the show that R is talking yes. about. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Then this definitely will remind you of that because not all Native children were sent to schools that were really far from home. There's one woman, Ethel Wheeler. She was a student at the Riverside Indian School in Oklahoma. And because she is really cool and tough, she repeatedly tried to escape from the really abusive, repressive conditions there. And she just kept trying to get home. But she always got caught. And the final time she escaped, she was actually sent to this school in Phoenix, Arizona. And so the journey to Phoenix was pretty horrible. She and the other children that were being sent there were basically just forced into cattle cars and taken by train. These trains had no heat. It was the dead of winter. I think we like to think that, you know, a train going somewhere like Arizona would not be cold Mm -hmm. because we think of those places as like being the desert, but it's really cold there in the winter. They get snow, it gets especially cold at night. night. Yeah. So this is a really inhumane treatment that they're experiencing. There were a lot of kids on this train who did not survive. Mm -hmm. I don't think they had like blankets or anything. They really just had like body heat to keep them warm and the clothes on their back. So... It was a really horrible thing that she experienced. I'm sure extremely traumatizing in every way. It's literally like how they took people to concentration camps. Exactly. It's exactly exactly like like, yeah. So Ethel has a husband, Joe, who is also a survivor of residential schools. He suffers from the trauma he experienced to this day and believes that the goal of the schools was to destroy his culture. And he's absolutely right about that. Yeah. And also just a note on Joe... I'm pretty sure he's the person that this happened to. So he actually was able to let, like, he found a way to actually tell his parents what was going on at the schools. Mm -hmm. And his dad actually demanded that he be released. And they actually, like, let that happen. I'm surprised. I know. I was, too. He, I think he just kind of got really lucky. Yeah. Um, It's also possible that he maybe was a little bit older, too. I'm not sure. But whatever the case, he did get to go home. And so, you know, the fact that, like, his dad was able to rescue him, but he still was so traumatized, you know? I really think that that just goes to show how brutal these places were and how bad they were, even if you were there for a short period of time. Yeah. 
Indoctrination began with very simple education. Children were taught basic maths, spelling, reading, and writing. Use of their native languages were expressly forbidden. It was English only. There were signs that said English only all over the place. Alongside this, especially in the schools run by the Catholic and Anglican churches, there was strict religious education that often included hourly prayer and following like very strict Christian doctrines. And if children were to, quote unquote, step out of line, they would be punished not only physically, but through rigorous religious and emotional abuse. In addition to this religious and emotional abuse, children would be beaten with paddles, switches, or by hand, or locked in small closets with no food. They would be forced to pray for hours and hours of the day, or write page after page of what they did wrong, with any mistakes meaning they had to start over. And often because of the fact that English was not their first language, and because um, a lot of the words that they were supposed to write were words they probably did not know for the express purpose of making them have to start over, it was extremely common that these children would just, like, write into the night, would be forced to continue writing. Honestly, sleep deprivation was probably a big part of their experiences here as well. Yeah, I'm sure they were not (laughs) well-rested. A lot of the time, the culture within these residential schools was just in general kind of toxic, like the culture that existed between the students. Many children would make fun of other children who continued to cling to their, you know, traditional like tribal ways of life. Um, They, you know, these kids had been taught at this point for a long time in these really, you know, abusive conditions that it was bad to hold on to their culture. And so naturally they targeted the kids that weren't falling in line Mm -hmm. they were you know constantly being taught that their culture the culture that they were born into was quote pagan or savage quote this internal pushback from those that were supposed to be similar in their situation was even more disheartening and further indoctrinated these children into following the western christianized ways and i think you know, it's so true, like, just in life, you know, kids are so mean. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we underestimate, like, if you've never had kids be mean to you when you were a kid, you know, you really underestimate the power they have over you. Groupthink and psychology is so real. It's so real, yeah. And kids are mean. They're so mean. <laughs> They're so mean. And it's just awful to think that these kids are being basically encouraged to be that way mm-hmm. by adults. Yeah. Disturbing. Which is essentially the same thing that's happening when we're not teaching critical race theory. In yes, school, for the record. That's another thing. <laughs> It's so, kind of relevant, though. It's very relevant. This is the type of history that we're not taught yes. about Native Americans. Yes. We're taught they shared bread at the Thanksgiving. Right. They did blah, blah, blah. But it's like critical race theory is just American history, but yeah. honest. Yes, honest. And yeah. that's what it is. Exactly. My dad is a history teacher, and he always says, like, I don't know what critical race theory is, but if it's just teaching things like the Civil War was definitely about slavery, then that's what I'm going to teach. Like, yeah. that's, that's history. That's true. Exactly. It's not like we're trying to... Make it up. Yeah. Yeah. Like, these things, these horrible things really did happen. We need to talk about them. And not talking about them is more dangerous yep. than anything else. Yep. So, all of this emotional, religious, physical abuse occurred against these children. And, of course, this is not even mentioning the sexual abuse carried out against these children, nor the fact that so many children went missing at residential schools. Now we're seeing that with the mass unmarked graves being uncovered in the U.S. and Canada, it becomes more and more stark and clear the horrifying actions of these schools. At the Carlisle School alone, at least 180 children and teens died. 
They were buried on school grounds, and their families were not made aware of their death. There is also no record of how these children died. It's likely that they died from a variety of causes, disease, accidents, beatings, etc. But because of the fact that it wasn't disclosed, to me, it's foul play. Yeah. But just again, kind of referencing back to the Holocaust, right? There's this thing that Holocaust deniers will do. Because, you know, there's people that deny it outright. Like, they're Mm -hmm. just like, none of this happened. And then there's also people who will say, it wasn't as bad as what the history books tell you. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they'll say is, well, well, more people died in concentration camps from typhus than they did from mass killings. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, Okay, but they would not have gotten typhus if they weren't in a concentration camp. Exactly. And why were they in a concentration camp? Because they were Jewish or because they were Romani or because they were gay. Like, like it doesn't erase the cause. Yes. <laughs> and I think also, Ara knows this, but I'll say it now on the podcast because I don't think I have before. Right now, I'm getting a degree in Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights Studies. And one of the very first things that you learn when you start into your major, to this major is the actual legitimate, like, United Nations definition of genocide. And for the record, I think this genocide definition needs a lot of work. They need to include more groups of people and things like that. Definitely. However, a very important part of this definition is that it's not just mass murder. It's pretty much anything that is, like, systematically designed to completely destroy a culture of some kind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it could be trying to destroy the Jews during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. It could be trying to destroy Native Americans. It could be so many other things. Mm -hmm. Just long, long list. There's so many different genocides that have happened and then things that are kind of like debated. And the thing is that a lot of times I think we forget that genocide is not just mass killing. It's so much more than that. And the reality is that these residential schools, they are a type of genocide because the goal was to get rid of the culture. And we see that there are all of these people who in this time period were saying things like, quote, kill the Indian to save the man. And what they meant by that was that, well, if we can convince these people to, to, to get rid of their culture and join us in our Western Christian civilization, then we won't have to murder them. Mm-hmm. Because but still, you're killing off. Yeah, you're stealing off their culture. So it's still a genocide because you're destroying who they are as people. It's like, what kind of life is that? Like when it is mass murder, it's mass murder to get rid of a culture and way of life. Mm-hmm. That's why, like, mass killings aren't necessarily called genocide. Yeah. Because there's a difference. And why there's debate over, like, whether or not certain things in history have been genocides or mm-hmm. not. It's thought that over 38,000 children suffered from sexual abuse or physical abuse at the hands of residential schools in Canada. This number is really a rough estimate, though, and can't really be trusted 100%. Like we said at the very beginning, these schools didn't keep very good records. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know exactly what always happened. And it's much more an issue in Canada right now than it is in the U.S. There's not as much outrage here as there is in Canada. So that's why we don't have as much people looking into things or or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely something that we need to look into more, that we need to go to to these sites and unearth these children and and return them to their to their proper burial places but yeah like their families deserve answers they do the thing is that even in the u.s they find these sort of unmarked like mass graves pretty often Mm -hmm. there's a particular instance that happened in the last couple of years that i read about where these grad students from some school in montana college in montana i don't remember which one they went all the way to oregon 
and they started using like ground penetrating radar and stuff like that to see if there were graves at this residential school Mm -hmm. and they found like over a hundred yeah and none of them were marked there's no record of who those kids are there's probably no way to identify most of them it's just the knowledge that there's like a hundred dead kids there and there's no way to get a lot of answers other than that they were part of the trauma of the school yeah and again, I will say that the U.S. government is being completely oh, yeah. crap oh, at yeah. addressing these things. Um, and while we might have more Native American representation yeah. in the government, they're still not going to be able to mm-hmm. do anything. Because no matter if they are a figurehead of something, there's so much red tape and there's there is, been yeah. so many years of not wanting to help Native Americans and to want to continue to wipe them out, plain and simple, that... It's going to take a long, long time to get anything addressed, which is what's, I think, the most sad of all of this is that there hasn't been immense amounts of change and it's hard to see on the horizon. We we're getting farther and there is resurgence as we as we will talk about. But again, it's a matter of the U.S. literally not taking a stance on this and essentially not condemning it. The current uh, secretary of, I think, the interior, interior I, think, I think, yeah, she, Deb Haaland, she is, she is Native American yes. and she's obviously like very concerned about this and she's like promised to do like proper investigations and things like that. But like even with her in this position of power, again, like Ara said, there's red tape. There are things that are going to prevent her from doing the kind of investigations that are actually necessary. I would imagine, too, there's kind of a disconnect where people are, you know, saying like, hey, yeah, we need to investigate these residential schools. This horrific stuff happened there. And then other people are saying residential schools. Well, what are those? Yeah. Because it's just not in our history books. Because it's like an education issue, not just an issue of logistically, how do we go about investigating all this stuff? Mm -hmm. So currently there are over 18 former residential schools where searches for unmarked graves are planned or in progress in Canada. The thing is that there are at least 139 of these schools registered in Canada. Mm-hmm. So searching at 18 is kind of not a lot. Exactly. And also... <laughs> it's even worse here. The Again, the bureaucracy, the red tape of having quote-unquote registered residential yeah. schools... There's so many more that aren't registered. Because there are some that are unregistered. Tons, like more, like two, three, four times as many and probably. And because they're unregistered, they could also get away with more stuff. Yep. Because they're not... I mean, government foresight is like zilch anyways, but still like, so it's like a whole thing where you can't win either way. Yeah. The good thing about this episode that we (laughs) we finally have gotten to is that there is such a large amount of resurgence and information and just forms of resistance today by indigenous Native American, as well as people who are descendants of settler colonists but are now aware of this, processing the information, actively researching and finding out more. Yeah. And we're trying to help in the ways that we can. Of course, as we said earlier in our land acknowledgement, we cannot make up for the things that have happened, but we can try to learn and help others learn along the way. And again, I have to mention critical race theory Yeah. because it's such a large part of this is the accurate telling of history of America because it's not this lovely whitewashed thing that we are taught in schools, no. which actually isn't that lovely, especially for POC people. So. Oh yeah. Like it's literally <laughs> like all the white kids in the class are just like, sure. Yeah. And like everybody else in the class is just sitting there going, uh, that I sounds remember. fake. 
Also, I just want to say, if you are listening and you are a white person who maybe feels a little bit attacked, you know, right now. Or uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. I want to say, first of all, it's normal to feel uncomfortable because these topics are uncomfortable. I don't think a single person feels comfortable when this comes up. Mm -hmm. Like, not a white person, not a black person, not an indigenous person. Like, nobody. It's gross. Mm -hmm. The thing is that whenever we talk about this and we say things like, oh, yeah, you know, white people did this to indigenous people. We understand that we, like me and Ara and you guys listening, we did not necessarily do those things, right? Mm -hmm. But whenever we choose not to talk about it and whenever we say, oh, I don't, you know, that makes me uncomfortable or that makes me feel like I'm being blamed, right? Whenever we say things like that and, you know, trying to kind of defend ourselves, what we're really saying to the indigenous people, the, you know, people of color, you know, whoever else that might be sort of an oppressed minority or whatever, mm-hmm. they are hearing, I'm uncomfortable hearing about your pain. Exactly. I'm uncomfortable recognizing that you are suffering mm-hmm. and that you've been suffering you know, you and your ancestors have been suffering for like centuries. Mm -hmm. And so I think the thing is, it's important to recognize is that as white people, and all people in general, this is true for everybody, we cannot be held responsible for horrible things our ancestors did. What we can do is learn about what they did, and that it was wrong. We can learn why it was wrong. And then we can talk about the fact that it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And we can make promises and, and take action to do better. So that our children, you know, the children of indigenous people, the children of black people, of Asian Americans, of, you know, just literally everybody, all of the descendants that we are going to have. We want those people to live in a world that is better than the one we're living in. We want them to have an easier time talking about this stuff because the pain has started to heal, Mm -hmm. you know, and that can't heal if we don't talk about it now. Exactly. So that's kind of the thing. the fact that the system that we currently live in still profits off of that yeah and continues to enact colonistic and racist Mm -hmm. and patriarchal actions towards these people yep and it's not going to change unless people talk about it yep and unless we raise enough hell about it that they will listen Mm -hmm. and unfortunately minorities already have all of this ancestral trauma that they're carrying with them and all of this current trauma they're carrying with them because of the society that is systemic that we live in so white people (laughs) it's our job to make that fuss yes to call this stuff to the forefront Mm -hmm. to take the heat so to speak for it because they're still living with it yeah and it's our job to try to help right and i guess another thing too is like i said we can't be held responsible for the things our ancestors did but if we don't do anything about it now then we become just as bad. Just as bad. We become, you know, the same people who stood by and were just like, oh, you know, yeah, there's a residential school, whatever. We become those people, you know, our generation's version of them. And, you know, I guess just think back and like think about the way that you look at your ancestors. And if you think, I don't think my ancestors were that great, you know, or definitely would have had some problematic views. Which... They all did in some way. And we probably, you know, in in 100 years, people will look back and say the same things about us. So, you know, but the thing is that think about how you want to be remembered. Do you want your ancestors, your, you know, great, great grandchildren to one day do their like genealogy and be like, oh, wow, great, great grandma sucked. Like, because I don't. Grandma, <laughs> I would hope that that person was like, wow, she was boring or wow, she like really stood up for stuff. Great you guys are smart. Sucked. You get what I'm saying. 
<laughs> great, 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 great. But yeah, so we're not making light of anything. No. But, I mean, we should be sorrowful, but also at the same time, we should remember there is resurgence, there is pushback, there is resilience. Yep. And, you know, there is hope. There is a future that could be better if we continue to fight for it. And that's yeah. kind of our talk on residential yeah. schools, on the atrocities of them, but also on the continuing resilience and resurgence of yes. Native peoples and how we can work mm-hmm. alongside them to do what we can to yep. continue to improve their livelihoods, their tribal life, their tribal living, their sovereignty, because many, many tribes are either not federally recognized by the government, so do not get a lot of quote-unquote benefits, <laughs> quote-unquote <laughs> benefits, <laughs> and that makes it even harder on tribes that are not recognized, but even more so, even tribes that are recognized, they still don't have a lot of sovereignty. They don't have the ability to make their own choices for their people. And that's a real issue because they should be able to have sovereignty over their own people and they should not have to feel displaced in a place that they have either been forced to move to or that their family has been on for generations and generations and generations. And the government is saying, leave or pay taxes or what have you. Yeah. So sovereignty is a really big issue in this type of thing as well. And it's definitely worth talking about more. However, it's it's a whole other discussion. It's a whole other topic that maybe we will cover in the future. But I definitely would recommend looking up indigenous sovereignty movements, indigenous resilience movements, and indigenous resurgence that can be your homework for this week (laughs) but of course our anchor is always open for voice messages so please if we have said something incorrectly if we've said something wrong we know it's not your job to educate others we know that it is tasking and we know it does rekindle trauma it does make things hard but if you are feeling up to that we would love to be further educated on this to learn more to correct ourselves because of course we're only trying to assist indigenous people and by POC people with their struggles and their fights and we wouldn't ever want to do anything of the sort so please leave us a message and we will of course get back to you as per usual we'll do our sign off yeah so we are on pretty much all the social medias instagram facebook we have tiktok right yes yes and we are wicked weird and grim and then Twitter, we are Wicked Weird Grim. And we're on Patreon, so help subscribe us to us there and uh, help us out. On Patreon, all of our tiers are set up. We have some really cool merch that artist friends are working on. Yes. So We're excited. Yes. <laughs> Definitely check us out there. Yes. And if you really, really love us, please leave us a review on like yeah. iTunes. Yeah. Because we really like to hear from you guys. Yeah. And we like to, you know, know if people are liking us. Are people out there? <laughs> are you guys out there? <laughs> do you like us? Well, if you don't like us, don't leave a review. But, yeah. Um, so, right. um, thanks for listening, guys. And we will see you next Wicked Weird Wednesday with yes. the Grim Sisters. Woo. Bye, guys. Bye.